This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.com. For our scripture reading today, uh, we have an Old Testament text, and then we'll turn to the New, which is our sermon text in the book of Hebrews as we return uh, to our study in the book of Hebrews. First, we turn to Genesis chapter 14 and verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Kittalamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then we turn to Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 28. The whole chapter is our sermon text today. If you'll follow along with me as I read. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Good morning, First Press. It's a joy to be with you this morning and the opportunity to worship our God and, and just uh, seeing the snow out there makes us thankful for heat in here, right? The opportunity to, to snuggle up and, and uh, um, hear the word. So our text this morning is Hebrews 7. We're diving back into this series on the superiority of Christ. We spent a lot of time developing that already, that Christ is better than Moses, Christ is better than angels. And it goes on and more and more stressing the superiority of Christ. But just before we dive into our passage, chapter 7, let's take a moment, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we gather in your house, and, and we gather here in this space to worship you. There is nothing more important, there is nothing greater that we could do than to worship you. You are the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of our souls. You are the one who sent your own son into the world to die for sinners, us. And Lord, we are thankful for that victory that he has purchased by his own blood. We're thankful for the proof that we have been forgiven in the resurrection. And we're thankful that now we know that the resurrected one now has ascended and sits at the Father's right hand, making intercession for us even as we sit in this place. We're thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're thankful for the empowerment and the change that comes in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit as he applies the finished work of Jesus to our lives. Lord, we recognize there are many in this room who are struggling physically, emotionally, spiritually, and yet we know victory has been purchased through Christ for each and every one of us. Lord, we would pray that through your word this morning, we would see that victory. 
that we would see that power that Christ provides, why he is superior to all the other things in the world, and that our eyes would be fixed upon him this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would use my mouth to glorify you. I pray that I would not say more nor less than you've given me to say, but I pray that I would be faithful to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. John Bunyan, have you heard that name before? Well, if you've been at First Pres for any amount of times, you know that John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress is one of my favorite books of all time. Interesting enough, the Pilgrim's Progress is actually one of the highest selling books. I don't know if you knew that. It's actually right underneath the Bible. Of all the books that have been sold, Pilgrim's Progress is right up there. The main character of that book is a guy named Christian who is on a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's really the pilgrimage of John Bunyan. He's sharing, in a sense, his own story, his own walk and struggle. Well, in the story itself, Christian, the main character, is leaving the city of destruction. He's been encouraged by a man named Evangelist to go and to flee the city of destruction and to be on his way to the celestial city. As he begins traveling, there's an acquaintance he grabs along by a name Pliable. You can imagine that this character is living out his namesake. He is very pliable. He's, he's in some ways not really helpful to Christian. But as they begin this journey, as they set out, they fall into great trouble. They fall into the swamp of despond. This is a picture that John Bunyan offers for us of the difficulties and hardships of the Christian life. As they fall into this swamp, they're covered in mud. Pliable, Christian's friend, is able to break himself free. But rather than helping Christian, he himself, Pliable, heads back to the city of destruction. He leaves Christian there, who is already weighted down by a burden on his back, to fend for himself in that mud. Christian struggles. He wrestles. But no matter how hard he tries, he can't break himself free. Just as discouragement was beginning to set in, there enters one who's known as Help. Help's an interesting character in John Bunyan's story. You don't know where he came from. You don't really know much about him. You just know that he appears. And as he appears, he appears to help Christian right in that situation. He's a mysterious character. He seems to drop from the sky. And as this mysterious character, he, he seems to have a purpose in John Bunyan's story to truly help Christian. I like what Charles Spurgeon says as he's quoting and discussing the different characters. He comes to help and he says, with this character, while not a lot is known about him, there are certain things we do know. Listen to the way Charles Spurgeon describes this character. He has a tender heart. He has a quick ear. He has steady feet. And he has a strong hand to offer assistance. Help. How many of us don't desire someone like that in our lives? When we fall into the mire and, and, and ultimately feel ourselves trapped by the situations often life provides for us. And it seems in John Bunyan's story, he just drops this character from the sky who just happens to be there at just the right moment. Even when Christian has been abandoned by one of his own friends, Pliable, 
their help appears. Strong hands, steady feet, quick ears, tender heart, and he comes to the rescue. See, help actually gives Christian a hand and sets him upon the solid ground. He points him in the right direction and sends Christian on his way towards the celestial city. My argument this morning is that the writer of Hebrews is doing that for you. He is being a help to you. He's setting your feet upon solid ground and he's pointing you in the right direction and saying, follow Christ. Follow Christ. Don't get caught up in all the things that can hold you back. Avoid the plagues that ultimately can harm you in this world. The things that are the mud that can sink you in and bring you to ruin. Helps there. And the writer of Hebrews is such a help. But even the writer of Hebrews needs help to be able to be help to us. And so he offers a character, Melchizedek. Drops him in just from the sky. It's interesting because only three times in this book, Melchizedek's name is mentioned. And it seems that he constantly is, is bringing him up. But why? Because Melchizedek is an important character in Scripture. See, Melchizedek is a picture of Christ. Melchizedek is is mysterious. He jumps into the scene on Genesis 14. You heard it read from Jerry, and literally what you heard, that's what amount of information we have about this character called Melchizedek. He just seems to appear. And as he appears, he appears after a scene where Abraham has already won a great victory and freed Lot and received lots of loot from conquering all the other kings. And as Abraham is coming back, there he runs into Melchizedek. And what does Melchizedek do? Well, he offers a feast to Abraham of bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? Bread and wine, it's a picture of the Lord's table. But he does something also in that moment. He blesses Abraham. Notice, Melchizedek is called in Genesis 14 the priest of the Most High. And therefore, Abraham responds appropriately and presents Melchizedek with one-tenth of all of his loot. He presents it to Melchizedek. So we have to pause for a moment and say, well, who is this guy? Who is this guy that's able to bless Abraham, the father of, of the Jews? Who is this individual who's, who's able to bless Abraham and at the same time receive a tenth from Abraham? Well, Melchizedek in our text is described as a king priest. You read that in verses 1 through 3. He's called the king of Salem or the Shalom, which would later become Jerusalem. He's called the priest of the Most High. But he's called this king, this king of peace, but he's also called this king of righteousness in verse 2. Righteousness and peace. But he's also a priest. Another interesting thing about Melchizedek is he's an ordinary man, but he has no mention of his beginning nor his ending. It just seems like he always existed and always will exist. Look at verse 3, it says he was without father or mother or genealogy. Again in verse 3, it says there's no beginning. There's neither beginning of days nor end of life. 
Note that he didn't have, in a sense, a father that needed to be discussed or a mother. His beginning days didn't need to be of our concern, nor his end of days. In fact, there's very little known of Melchizedek. He just appears, this king priest. And what does he do? He blesses Abraham. And he receives from Abraham a tenth of everything Abraham has received. There's a lot of things that are bed in to this description. The thing I want you to see clearly is that Melchizedek's ability to bless Abraham and Abraham's willingness and desire to give a tenth to Melchizedek says something about Melchizedek's superiority. His superiority. It says something about who he is. He's not from the line of Aaron. He, he's not a Levite. In fact, he, he seems to just be this character who drops from the sky, who's both king and priest. That's very unique in Scripture. In fact, you can't find that role anywhere other than Melchizedek in the Old Testament. A king and a priest? He's not definitely described as a time when he was born or when he will die. And yet he leads us to this great story and importance of one greater than himself. See, Melchizedek offers us a type of Jesus. Back in Luke chapter 24, Jesus had resurrected. There was quite a stir, and many of the disciples, the former followers of Jesus, were talking about it. In fact, on the road of Emmaus, Jesus, the risen Christ, encounters two men. And they begin to talk about the events of that resurrection. But one of the most interesting things that's said there is in verse 27 of Luke 24. When it says in the text that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all that the scripture had to say concerning himself. See, the reason that's so important is because it tells us that the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are about Jesus. So when we read about a character in, in Genesis 14 called Melchizedek, who not much is told about, it forces us to say, why is he brought into the storyline? How does he help us to understand Jesus better? See, actually knowing something about Melchizedek actually helps us to know something about Jesus. My prof, Michael Kruger, says it this way. Melchizedek is a historic figure. He's a real person. He wasn't just some theophany. He wasn't just some, some picture of the resurrected Christ or the pre-incarnate Christ. No, he, he was actually a real figure. But more importantly than that, he was a type of Christ, a figure who points forward to Jesus. The Psalms, I told you that Luke 24 Jesus took all of the, 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 the stories of Moses and the prophets and, and even the writings, the, the scriptures, and he pointed to himself. He would have talked about Psalm 110.4 where it says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is, is, a, is, is a picture here. He's pictured in Melchizedek. Melchizedek anticipates a king priest who would come. Melchizedek is a picture of a, of a priest who's far superior to any other king or priest that they ever could have. Melchizedek is 
resembling, according to chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 3, he's resembling the Son of God. This King of righteousness, this King of peace, as Melchizedek is called. He pictures Jesus in much the same way. For Jesus, the promised Messiah, is a king of righteousness. We read of this in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. And Jesus is also defined to us as the prince of peace or the king of peace in Isaiah 9, 6. So just as Melchizedek is called the king of righteousness, the king of peace, those are descriptions that are given by the prophets of Jesus. And as Jesus is walking on that road of Emmaus with the disciples, I'm sure he's pulling all of this together. Remember that cat, Melchizedek? Remember how he was called king of righteousness? Isn't that what Jeremiah said about the promised one? Remember how he was called king of peace? Isn't that what Isaiah said about the long coming one? That's me. See, this king of righteousness, this king of peace that Melchizedek is foreshadowing is Jesus Christ himself. Because here's the bottom line. Friends, you can have no peace without righteousness. You can't have peace with God without righteousness. You can't have peace with your brothers or sisters without righteousness. And yet Jesus was given to provide peace through righteousness. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace through Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is not only this king, he's also this priest. And see, Melchizedek was this picture of this king priest. And so Jesus is pictured as a king priest, but not just simply as a king priest. Know this, Jesus is also a prophet. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus fulfills all the offices in every way in which we look in the Old Testament and see these different characters come to light. Jesus fulfills them, and yet Melchizedek seems to be very profound in that he's fulfilling two offices. And yet in this, Jesus is even greater than Melchizedek, for Melchizedek is merely a foreshadow of him. So let's talk about this priest, this king, Jesus. See, as a priest, Jesus had no limits. Just as Melchizedek didn't have limits. We did not know anything of his birth or his death. We know nothing of his genealogy. And the reason this is important is because in Levitical priesthood, it was all about your, your lineage. It was all about who you were. To be able to serve in the priesthood, you had to be a Levi. You had to prove your, your, your papers. You had, you had to be, have, you have proof that you were truly able to serve in this role. And yet Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi, was he? Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And so he didn't have the normal beginning. There's no genealogy to this priesthood. Melchizedek just seems to appear, and Jesus just seems to appear as the priest. He's a different kind of priest, though. See, the priests of the Levites, they, they never offered final protection. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? 
rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Shouldn't it have all just been through Aaron and and the Levites? Why do we need one from Melchizedek? Because what the Levites offered us didn't truly help us. See, the sacrifices had to continue under the Levites. More doves, more lambs, more bulls, more goats, day after day, because none of them could truly satisfy. In fact, the Levitical law made nothing perfect. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. What is that help? What is that hope? It's Christ. What the law could not do, Jesus did do. See, we have a priest who actually has power to help us. And that's exactly what's described in verse 16. Who's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement, paperwork, lineage, but by the power of indestructible life. That's what Jesus provides. Through power we have hope. And where does Jesus get this call? From an oath. A promise covenant. Made by who? By God. Look at verse 21. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who is said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. See, notice the connection here that his priesthood would never end just as Melchizedek were not told of his ending. Ultimately, we're told that reason that, that Jesus is the priest that we need is because God promised to provide him and to use him. And this promise is a promise of the new covenant. This is a promise that's rooted in God's promise to his people. He's sworn it, and God does not change his mind, the scripture says. So, why does this matter? Why does any of this matter? It matters because according to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is far better than anywhere else you can go for help. See, Jesus is the guarantor of the better covenant, according to verse 22. He's the guarantor. He's the one who makes it assured. He's the one who fulfills it. He's the one who brings it about. Jesus is the one who does it. On our behalf, Jesus doesn't simply offer animal sacrifices. Jesus, the sinless one, offers himself. What a contrast this is to all the Levites who not only have to make sacrifice for the people, but they have to make sacrifices for themselves. But not so with Jesus. As the guarantor, as the promised one, he is the promise. He is the assurance. He is the fulfillment All the other Levites died. That's why there needed to be a lineage, one after another, to help us, but not with Jesus, because he never dies. His office never ends. He is now continually making intercession for his people. This is the good news. And this is what the writer of Hebrews would say to you. Pay attention. 
See the beauty of Jesus, how he's far better than anything else. Jesus provides God's blessed people with the greatest of blessings. He provides himself. As you think about that moment, I want you to think about the book of Hebrews. I want you to think for a moment about why Hebrews was written in the first place. Many, many, many weeks ago, I shared with you that the Hebrew Christians that this was written to were probably living in Rome and under great persecution. And in fact, they were persecuted not only by the Romans, but they were also being persecuted by the Jews. They were viewed as an outside sect. Nobody seemed to understand or desire to have any company with the Christians. The Christians here were struggling. They were struggling. They were getting caught up in the mire of life. They were starting to allow their short-sightedness of the past to cloud their understanding of that which is far better. See, they were starting to go back to the Levitical priesthood. They started to go back to the temple. They started to go back to the things that previously they viewed as their hope and missing all along what those things foreshadowed and what those things pointed to, which was Jesus himself. So the writer of Hebrews has been preaching to these people, calling them to take their eyes off the past and to look forward into what Jesus has achieved. Because Jesus is the better hope. Jesus is the one who enables us to draw near to God because Jesus is the guarantor of the better covenant, according to verse 22. Let me just simply say this. As a father, a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, one of my greatest concerns for all of us is that we would lose sight of the greatness of Jesus. Let me say that again. One of my greatest concerns is that we will lose sight of the greatness of Jesus. We so easily get caught up into traditions or religiosity, or we get caught up into to things outside, things such as money or sports or politics. We run to these things as though they're going to satisfy. All the while, we're missing the beauty which is on display in the Word of God. What a waste it would be for someone to go through life, to hear the message of the gospel week after week, to attend church, to sing songs, to be in Bible studies, but all the while to miss the beauty of Jesus. Can you think of anything so discouraging. Could that possibly be you this morning? That you've been attending church, you've been attending Bible studies, you've been sitting through sermon after sermon, but somehow you've missed it. You've missed the beauty and the superiority and the, the betterness of Christ. See, that's the picture of the writer of Hebrews. His heart is heavy for these people who are allowing the persecution of the world to take away the joy of Christ. Is that something you're letting happen in your life? Are you allowing the things of the world to muddy your view of Jesus? 
Friend, I have good news for you. It's the same news that the writer of Hebrews has. Same picture of why ultimately Jesus came throughout the Gospels. Jesus came for those who are stuck in the mud. Jesus came for those who are sinners. Jesus came for those who are broken. Jesus came for the weak, the wounded, the weary. Jesus came to save the least and the lost. And church, I want you to understand that this is the heartbeat of Christianity. Jesus. What you do with Jesus matters more than anything else. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. See, this great mysterious character, Melchizedek, that he's using is only an instrument to point to Jesus. He's saying you, you want to go back to the Old Testament. You want to review all the greatness of people like Moses and Levitical law and the tabernacle. But let me say, they're nothing compared to the greatness of Jesus. Just like Abraham was nothing compared to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is nothing compared to Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Find your joy in Jesus. That's the message. Because Jesus is our help. Let's pray. Father, this is a robust passage which we could take countless weeks to cover. And yet, Lord, the simple truth is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. Jesus is necessary. And so, God, I pray that that message would be what pounds us this morning, that we would see the importance of Christ. Lord, help us not to walk in religion. Help us not to simply walk through the formalism of tradition. But, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who hunger and thirst to know Jesus. That in him we would find our joy. And for those of us maybe who've wandered away from that joy, who found ourselves burdened and, and weighted down and, and stuck in the miry clay of, of this world, Lord, rise us up. Help us as only you can. Put our feet upon the sure ground and point us to the path of the one who matters most, our Savior, our friend. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.com.